First Peter chapter 3, verse number 18, single verse. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Heavenly Father, we pray for your direction as we consider these words, the application of these words, uh, the, the theology of these words. We pray for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in our considerations. Move through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As we read this letter, or Peter's second letter, we need to remember that his words were colored by the things that he had experienced. Yes, the Holy Spirit is inspiring every word, every syllable. We don't deny that. But the Lord uses the people through whom he speaks. And those people are uh, formed, shaped by the things that they have experienced. In other words, when we read these words of Peter, there are things that were negative in his life which helped to develop who he is. Helped to develop, maybe that's not the right terminology to use, but there were negative things in Peter's life. There were uh, the foolish questions that he asked at the uh, transfiguration of the Lord. Can we build some uh, memorials here to you three? That sort of thing. He walked on water. And then he nearly drowned. He refused to agree with the Lord about the upcoming crucifixion. He condemned others who were strangers from serving Jehovah if they weren't doing so under the direct uh, uh, authority of the Lord Jesus. And then there was that question regarding John's future. What about him in comparison to me? What about that man over there? Peter, it's none of your business. There were positive things in Peter's life. Uh, things like the miracle of the uh, healing of his wife's mother. And he himself was involved in, the, in other miracles, which certainly would have affected him in a great many ways. Every once in a while, he opened up his mouth and good things came out of his mouth. Sometimes not so much. Certain events must come back to Peter as he writes this letter. They, they're, they're in the back of his mind or in the back of his heart. Peter shows us what sort of people Christians ought to be when they think about the Lord Jesus. The Lord, uh, Peter is not necessarily thinking about the sacrifice of Christ in the several places in this letter, but because it was so important to him, there they were. They were back in his heart. They were back in his mind. Previous to our salvation, yours and mine, we were fools. We were out and out fools. Like pigs in a mud puddle. I remember before my conversion, my parents would from time to time listen to the preaching of some heretic on the television, a fellow named Billy Graham. And I would listen to that and think, this isn't for me. What is this? And then the Lord saved me. And I began to realize, you know, much of what he was saying is true. And this is, this is quite exciting. This, I should have been more interested in it at the time. The Lord rescued me from the disaster to which I was headed in my young life. 
And how was it that he rescued me? He did so by picking up my punishment, the punishment for my sins, putting them on his back and bearing them to the place of execution which had been reserved for me. He saved me. He pushed me aside and climbed up on the cross where I should have been. Peter recognized that same sort of thing. Two of the greatest Bible verses on the subject of Jesus' substitution for the sinner come to us from Peter. It must have been something special to him. Peter said, what I saw in Christ was his intervention on my behalf. Mm. Whose own self bear my sins, our sins, in his own body on that tree. That we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. And then there's our scripture here in chapter 3, verse number 18. I hope that the members of Calvary Independent Baptist Church never tire of hearing of Jesus' sacrificial death. I wish that we were more faithful and consistent in bringing the lost to our morning service where you're almost always going to hear something in regard to salvation or the Lord Jesus in some fashion. This is just the way it's going to be around here. And in this particular Sunday, I plan to finish this message tonight. So if you want to bring 50 lost people into the service this evening, they're going to hear the gospel tonight. Pray that the Lord would move among us. I love to tell the story. More beautiful, it seems, than all the golden fancies of all our golden dreams. Let's join Peter in thinking about the fact Christ hath also suffered. Some time ago I was listening to a couple of people talking about the various pains that they were suffering. And in the course of the conversation at one point, one of them got very religious and said that all suffering is caused by sin. The words caused by... Uh, perhaps aren't as pointed and specific as they ought to be. I disagree that all sins are caused by personal sin. I know that I have mentioned this many times, but let's consider it from a slightly different angle. I look at human suffering and sin as inseparable Brothers, shall we say. But they're not the same boy. Certainly there would be no suffering in this world at all if it was not for Adam's sin. Uh, we, We grant that. There was that first sin and God cursed the earth and all of the children of Adam in that curse, so on and so forth. It's a part of the curse brought upon creation because of Adam's disobedience in uh, throwing aside God's will. Just as that curse lays universally on all creation and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Just as the curse and death 
are universal, so is suffering. We find it everywhere. We find it in all shapes and forms. But few people ever suffer in exactly the same way. It takes on its own individuality. And it may not be that a person suffers for some specific sin that he has committed. Is the antelope guilty of some sin now that it lies bleeding and dying at the foot of that victorious lion? What sin has the antelope committed? There it's suffering. There it is dying. And what about that unborn baby? torn apart in the murder which we euphemistically call uh, an abortion. When the disciples came across that man born blind in John chapter 9, they said, they asked, uh, who was it who sinned? Who was it who made this man blind? And Jesus, with his authority and knowledge, simply said, it wasn't this man and it wasn't his parents that he is suffering. It's correct to say that Jesus died to relieve this world of suffering. When Christ hung on the cross, it was with the most brutal and intense suffering himself. But it was not for any sin which he had committed. He committed no sin at all. As Peter said earlier in this epistle, which we read a few minutes ago, he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. He suffered because of the sins of other, others. He suffered for our sins. It is correct to say he suffered the curse because God placed the sins of his people on Christ. So yes, he died for, or he suffered for sin, but it wasn't his own. And that's just the point. He suffered for others, not for himself. And what about the pain of Gethsemane and the other pains that he endured during his life? Were, were there no tears? Was there no grief when Joseph died? It's an awful thing to attempt to comfort someone by telling them, well, my pain is worse than yours. While it may be true, it may be right, it's tacky to try to comfort somebody else using that terminology. What miserable comforters ye are. But there is an exception where that is always a perfectly good statement. My heart is warm to think that Jesus, my Savior, knows what it is to suffer, to really suffer. And he suffered more than any one of us. He suffered far more than I have ever suffered. His pain and his passion were infinitely more severe than when I was run over by the car and broke my leg. Some of you have had pleurisy. I've had pleurisy. That's no fun at all. Jesus suffered more than my pleurisy or anything that you have endured in this life. His pain and his passion were infinite. He endured his suffering without regret 
because it was with a purpose. He had an intention in it. I may be taking Hebrews 4.15 out of its context just a little bit, but not very far. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, touched, pained, like as we are, yet without sin. I am comforted when I read of the God of comfort in 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble, mm-hmm. by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. Do you remember the meaning of the Greek word which is translated to comfort? Parakletos speaks of drawing alongside. What is it to comfort? It's to come up beside someone and uh, put our arm around him. We have a God that does that for us. And he can lean toward us and tell us, you know, I know exactly what you are feeling. Because he does. Not just in a a godly fashion, by that I mean a divine way. Christ Jesus has experienced pain. He suffered for us. If you're hurting this morning, physically, emotionally, spiritually, I exhort you to go to the the throne of God, where the God of all comfort resides. He can meet your needs. He's done so for thousands, hundreds of thousands of others. The fellowship with the omnipotent comforter is the need We all have from time to time the fellowship with the one who knows pain more intimately than we do is beneficial for us. Peter tells us here, Christ also hath suffered for sins. In Jesus' case, there's a special form of that suffering which is called substitution. Substitution. Christ also hath once suffered for us the just for the unjust. Peter was not thinking about whether or not Jesus ever had a headache. Did Jesus ever ever have a headache? I don't know. He's not talking about whether Jesus stubbed his toe. He's not talking about the pain that some of the neighbors might have slung on Christ as they recognized his very special nature, that sort of thing. Peter is thinking about Calvary. His mind goes back to that thing, that event that he participated in to some degree just some time earlier. When the substitutionary Lamb of God gave his life for the salvation of wicked Peter. This word substitution is at the heart of salvation from sin. You've been given a piece of cherry pie made by your neighbor. You know she's a pretty good baker. 
but it's cherry pie. You didn't, you weren't involved in the preparation of that pie. So you take each bite with just a little care. There may be a pit in there somewhere. As my father used to say, he'd always, if there was a pit, if there was a seed, he'd find it. And so you eat that cherry pie, enjoying the flavor, but uh, using your tongue just to make sure you don't run into that pit. You worry a little bit about eating a cherry pie? Come on now. There isn't much better in this world, is there, to eat a cherry pie? But there'd be no cherries if there weren't pits. The same is true with our deliverance from sin, our salvation. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The words bruised and wounds speak of pain. They speak of suffering. They are to be born, they are to be experienced by Christ for those he intended to save. As the story goes, a minister went to visit an elderly dying Christian. And the preacher said, isn't it wonderful that we have the gospel set down in so few and simple words? And the dying man looked up at his, at his minister and said, it's one word, preacher. It's just one word as far as I'm concerned. Spurgeon said, if you put away the doctrine of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, you have disemboweled the gospel. Those old English people, they were so prime, so prim, so proper. To put it more crudely, you've ripped its guts out if you've taken away the substitution of the substitutionary aspect of the death of Christ. It's my prayer that this building burns down with Mara not in the basement at the time. Let this building burn down if the gospel ever evolves in this place to some aspect of bloodless, sacrificeless, substitutionaryless gospel. We don't need a gospel like that. The world doesn't need a gospel like that. For whom did the substitution uh, be made? Was it made for... The righteous, I came not to save the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. It was made for the unworthy. It was made for sinners. Christ also hath suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. The words just and unjust oppose each other in moral character like night and day. They imply... Whatever the Lord is, his substitution was made for the complete opposite. The Savior is described as our high priest, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, exalted into heaven. But you and I are holy, are unholy, hurtful, filthy, sinners doomed for hell. We are by nature what is the opposite of Christ Jesus. And yet Peter says, he died for we, the just for the unjust. When the father said of Christ, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, he could have added, pointing to us, this is my creation 
defiled by sin and worthy of destruction. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we are worms of worms and scum of scums. But the sacrifice of Christ was nevertheless of the just for the unjust. The skeptic says, Jesus was just a man like the rest of us. No, no, my friend, that's not true. When some statement is wrong, it's wrong. But when, but to say that Jesus was a mere man is among the wrongest of statements. No mere man. The Son of God may have taken upon him human flesh and was made in the likeness of man, but he was personally and completely without sin. He lacked that universal and fatal characteristic which is found in all of the denizens of earth. Christ was and is the just one, while each and every one of us are unjust in the sight of God. A lot of people try to deny that mankind is a family of sinners, but the proof is obvious. The very best of society at times show their pride and their greed at hurt others. 9-11 tells us this is not a good world. How many people were murdered in Spokane in the last week? Usually there's one or two. This is an evil place. The answer is plain. For all are sinners and we have all come infinitely short of the glory of God. Nevertheless, Christ, the just one, died for these unjust sinners. Our filthy filth is described as sin. And we hear that word and it it doesn't have the connotation in our hearts that it has in the heart of God. Sin, short word, three letters, pass over pretty quickly. Have you ever heard the saying, cleanliness is next to godliness? Some people actually have that a part of their faith, catechizing their children in it from an early age. Wash your hands, wash your face. As a result, having this part of their faith, they shower and they dress up, they doll up, they dude up, and they go to church. And they think to themselves, this is enough, or this is at least something. This has made them worthy to worship God. And they christen their children, telling themselves once again that godliness, or excuse me, cleanliness is next to godliness. But these things only make them twofold more the spiritually filthy children of hell that they really are. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within are full of extortion and excess. How blind, Pharisees, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Matthew 23. Our real filth is sin. Our internal, innate, intense sin and sin nature. 
But we have been commanded to seek holiness, without which no man shall see God. That verse in Hebrews 13 identifies the root of our problem. We lack holiness. We by nature are as far removed from holiness as sea turtles are from swimming on the moon. And yet, as he which hath called us is holy, so be ye holy, Peter tells us. Why must the Lord exhort us to seek holiness? It's because we lack it. We're unjust. We're sinners. Even Christians have to be reminded, seek holiness. Live in a holy fashion. I read of a man who came forward in a church service, broken for sin. He was visibly and, uh, well, tears were streaming down his face. He was stuttering and stammering. His pastor came over to him and put his arm around him and the man said, my sin is full of life. He started to correct himself. The preacher said, stop right there. You're exactly right. Your sin is full of life. Our sin is full of life and that makes us such sinners. That makes us so needy of a savior. Praise God there is a substitutionary redeemer. Someone who gave his life in our place. The just for the unjust. He has provided salvation that he might bring us to God. All men by nature are without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth, strangers from the covenant, having no hope and without God in the world. And as these aliens pass through the blood of Christ, we who sometimes were afar off are made nigh, nigh unto God. Peter is thinking about salvation in this great verse Chapter 3, 18. We shouldn't confine his thoughts to some small aspect of salvation. Like justification. Justification is the legal aspect of our redemption. Where the Lord writes in his ledger, metaphorically, Oh, it's been paid. It's been taken care of. Peter's not confining himself to redemption or adoption. He's speaking of it all, every aspect of it. <coughs> Where there is agreement with God, there is walking with God. Mm. So it includes fellowship, fellowship with the Lord. Christ died on the cross that he might bring us to God. I'm going to stop right there because... That's where we're going to go in our evening message. Right now, this, I fear, is the great need of so many of today's so-called saints. They're resting on their justification. They are delighted with uh, their adoption. They're part of the family. Family of God. And as a result... They don't enjoy the fellowship with the Lord that they ought to have. They're so focused on uh, their redemption. They don't go on. Christ gave his life on Calvary that he might bring us <coughs> to God. Now, what a tragedy 
that there are so many Christians who do not enjoy this fellowship with the Lord today. We've been ambling through life without power, without joy, without the Lord's abundance. So many have separated this life from eternity. Oh, it's going to get much better after I die or after the Lord, preferably, after the Lord comes for me and I'm translated and taken into heaven. That's when everything's going to get all right. They attend church. They pray now and then just to maintain a little contact with the Lord who's going to make everything all right one of these days. What about now? Uh, what, What a sad shame. The wonderful Savior has given his all that you and I might have fellowship with God. Today, his comfort, God's guidance, we need his wisdom, his fellowship, his abundant life, they're available today. What's keeping us from it? Isn't it our nominal Christian life? Have you been redeemed? Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Do you believe that statement to be true? There it is in the word of God. It's the truth. Well then, insert your name in there. Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for for David Oldfield, that he might bring me to God. Do you believe what the Bible says, that Christ died for you? Then look, no other place. There it is. You don't need baptism to get to heaven. You don't need church membership to get to heaven. They certainly can't cleanse you before the eyes of God. Forget about your good deeds. Those things that you do to help your neighbor and so on. Yes, continue to do that. As a testimony of your relationship to the Lord. But those things cannot save you. If you are not a child of God. Then humble yourself before the Lord. Repent before God. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him for what he did on the cross. Who his own self. Bear our sins. My sins. In his own body on the tree. That I might have life. Be brought to the Father. Enjoy eternity in holiness because Jesus gave his life for me. Amen. Please stand.